Fredology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Fraudology Podcast, where every week we will dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of a veteran fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. I've focused my life and career on online fraud prevention for over 15 years, working with hundreds of the most well-known e-commerce companies to help them prevent payment fraud and abuse. Hi, welcome to this week's episode of the Fraudology Podcast. As always, I am really glad that you are here. I had a lot of fun on the last episode. Uh, It was actually two weeks ago. And from what I hear, a lot of you enjoyed listening to it as well. Sometimes it's just fun for those of us who really enjoy fraud to just nerd out, so to speak. And that's what I did with Matt Vega and Will Megson, the co-hosts of the Fraud Technology Podcast. And from what I understand from those of you that listen to it, it sparked new ideas. And and that's what I love whenever I get to hear or host or facilitate various conversations around fraud is just that energy. And oh, yeah, and that made me think of this. And then what about that? And what about this? I only got through two or three questions that I planned to ask them. But that was just because we had such good conversation. And they actually just recently posted the episode where they had me on their podcast. So uh, if you really enjoyed the episode with them on this podcast, I'd recommend listening to me on theirs. They edited out a lot of their conversations. So I did text Matt and say, it sounds like I'm doing all the talking. (laughs) And as a talker, I try to be really conscious of that. And I said, I remember there was a lot more back and forth. And he was like, yeah, he edited that out just, you know, so you guys didn't have to hear as much fluff. But also he reminded me that I was the guest. And so I was supposed to be the one doing primarily most of the talking. But anyway, I've heard from a lot of you. I think they're hearing from a lot of people, too, that this is something that everybody really enjoyed. So we don't know the details yet. We're talking them out still. But I think we'll be doing some podcast episode swaps on a fairly regular basis. I took a much needed break from posting an episode last week. I just had a lot going on and really needed to get back to the basics. I love hosting this podcast. I love sharing information. I love being a conduit to sharing information and introducing you to great people in fraud and just all these conversations that we're having around e-commerce fraud best practices and trends and methodologies, etc. And I love sharing that information on LinkedIn and in other ways as well. But it can just sometimes be really overwhelming. I get like 20 to 30 messages on LinkedIn a day. And in a perfect world, I would answer all of those in full detail. I just can't. So I think I've mentioned this on previous podcast episodes before, but it's important to me that people know that in a perfect world, I would be responding to all of those and revenue wouldn't matter as much. However, I'm really lucky to have some great clients that I needed to really go back to making sure that they're well taken care of. And then I'm not dropping any unnecessary balls. And that's what I did there. But I'm trying to get back on track and have got some really cool interviews lined up 
for future episodes as well. So you have that to look forward to. I also, on that note, wanted to just let people know who are asking me about F4 that it is coming. We had our first planning call a couple weeks ago and it went so well. I was just so reinvigorated by the passion of these other female fraud fighters who want to continue this event and just how the dividends keep paying off, even after just it was a four hour event in January and I'm still hearing some incredible stories. And I know there's a lot of people that don't want to miss out on the next one. We don't have the dates for it yet, but they will be coming and I'll make sure that I share them on this podcast on LinkedIn and also to my email list as well at chargelyticsconsulting.com. So sign up there if you want to be absolutely sure that you're in the loop. Those were just like housekeeping things. The one other housekeeping announcement I was going to say is that it is coming upon what I usually refer to as conference season, which is the spring. And typically that means that I am shopping for a new wardrobe or at least a couple new things to go on the road. And I've got airline tickets booked and hotels reserved and all that, especially within the U.S. during this time. And that's not the case this year. I have heard of at least one fraud conference that is going to be in person in August in Vegas, which will be very hot, but luckily there's air conditioning indoors. And I believe there's one other conference that I will be attending pending getting the vaccine in June that I will announce if that's happening. Not necessarily a fraud conference, but more in finance and a little more outside of our specific zone, but within finance and global finance. For those of you who are itching to leave your house, those are two opportunities that I know of. But there are also several virtual events coming up. And there's a few that I just thought that I'd mentioned now. I'll be speaking at the Loyalty Security Association Spring conference on the 21st to 22nd of April. I can't remember exactly the date and time that I'm speaking at that one, as well as I'll be the keynote at the airline and travel summit or security summit, I think it is the 25th of May. And both of those are put on by the airline information events. I will put a link to those in the show notes. If you are in the airline industry and the travel industry, or if your company has a loyalty program, which really encompasses all kinds of types of companies, right? Not just air miles, but fast casual restaurants as well as retailers, etc. This is the first conference of its kind that is really focused on loyalty security. So I am excited to share a lot of information on what the bad guys are doing and then how you can stop it really in real time. How you, not how you can stop it in real time, but how really like updated methods of fraud. I'll be sharing a lot of information around tactics that are being used currently by fraudsters and criminal organizations, as well as some processes and technologies to identify, detect, and prevent those fraud methods. Some of them are things that I've talked about on the podcast before. A lot of them won't be, and I will also have visual aids from dark web sources. I am looking forward to that and hope you are too. Also, the virtual FraudCon event, I believe, will be in June or July this year. That's a part of Cyber Week through Tel Aviv University. And that conference is near and dear to my heart because it's where I won the Legend in E-Commerce Fraud Award. But also, it's just put on by a stellar group of fraud fighters. And I was asked to be on the volunteer content committee this year that I am really enjoying being a part of. Additionally, CMP is having a few, uh, Card Not Present is having a few sessions at the NRF Converge event, which is National Retail Federation event. And I believe that one's in June as well. So 
A lot coming up, especially for those of you that are missing events and want educational opportunities for your teams. I think that is one really good benefit of virtual events is being able to have your teams attend without having to pay for flights and hotel, et cetera. And I don't know if these will continue after the majority of the population of the world has been vaccinated. Definitely something to keep your eye on and consider. So I was thinking about just the last year since COVID. It's been a pretty much an entire year since the impact of COVID-19 on e-commerce. Now, obviously, I think it impacted almost every part of our lives, but I'm going to talk about what I know, which is e-commerce and e-commerce fraud. Just crazy things that we saw as far as changes in consumer behavior, which did impact some or a lot of machine learning models for a few months. But consumers really ultimately stopped spending money in event ticketing and in travel and wanting refunds and issuing chargebacks almost immediately. It was just a storm. And all the way to delivery, anything that was delivered or shipped to your door became extremely popular. So there was this huge spectrum. And I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but during that time, I created two different merchant collaboration calls for two different verticals and groups that were impacted by COVID in different ways. The first one was the event ticketing and travel group. And I actually keep meaning to play the recording of the very first call that I hosted. It was pretty much exactly a year ago. And it was after the NBA had canceled all their events and travel was at a standstill. And I was just fielding a lot of emails from various companies, whether they were marketplace platforms hosting various types of travel, whether they were online travel agencies, or the event ticketing companies, both first party and the second party uh, seller marketplaces, buyer and seller marketplaces, that were just asking, what do we do? We don't know what to do. And so out of necessity, I said, let's all get together on a call that will help me not have 12 different conversations that are similar, but also it'll help you guys help each other, which is always my favorite thing to do. And I'm hoping that once I listen to that call that I might be able to pull out some pieces. It'll almost be like a time capsule to play on the podcast as long as there's not a lot of specific company names or people names mentioned in those portions. And I think that'd be interesting. It might be painful for the people that went through that. And we still are having a weekly call with that group. But I have to say, I've had to clean out the list a few times over the last year because a lot of people are no longer at those companies. And this pandemic has greatly impacted those verticals. And I think that we're all seeing hope on the horizon. And I definitely picked up on that in the last call that we had with the group. But it's been really interesting. And then on the flip side, I started hearing about this steep increase and did not arrive and did not receive claims prior to the pandemic, but I really got worse during the pandemic. And that was through that call with about 30 or so really pretty large online retailers. We were able to determine that this was actually a more coordinated fraud effort. And we were able to identify the refunding fraud that I've talked about quite a bit on previous episodes here on this podcast as well as written articles about it and spoken about it at conferences. I know that this is still impacting companies greatly. And this is something that we continue to meet every other week on. If you are a retailer online and are interested in learning about that group, 
happy to have you join. I don't charge for it. It's honestly a highlight of my schedule every other week as well. But we do keep it to merchant only just so that people can feel like they can really speak openly. But there's been a lot of great discussions lately about shipping partners and holding them accountable as well as policy changes and procedures, which is just really fascinating because we're looking at fraud in a different way. It's now post-transaction for a lot of these merchants and not pre-transaction. I actually talked about it quite a bit on the Fraud Technology Podcast episode. If you're you know, interested in hearing a little bit more understanding of how that's working and how that's really impacting these companies. But I just kind of wanted to take a minute to reflect on that because it has greatly impacted us as a whole, it, not just conferences and not being able to collaborate in person, which is so important in this industry because there are a lot of things that can't be said in writing or on calls, but can be said face-to-face in a hallway or in a closed-door session or within a larger group of quote-unquote safe peers, for example. And so I think that for this industry more than a lot of them, it's really a necessity and something that a lot of us are missing. So those calls are able to help that piece and the collaboration piece, which is just so important. So out of actually the most recent retailer call came the main topic that I wanted to discuss on this episode. It really started with one large retailer talking and asking about a specific type of strategy or a specific tool in the fraud fighters toolkit, so to speak, to prevent account takeovers. And then we kind of got into diagnosing account takeovers. And this is something that I don't feel like gets talked a lot about. I see a lot of blog posts and webinars with topics about account takeovers, but I don't see a lot of people saying, hey, there are different methods of account takeover by the bad guys, and there are different intents of the bad guys or the fraudsters. and not all solutions, technology, or processes and policies are going to fix all of those different types. So I thought maybe it'd be helpful to go through how I diagnose account takeover and then also some of the things that have been discussed on the most recent retailer call is, as well as several others in the past. A lot of this information I've organized myself, a lot of it comes from these conversations, but I'm the mouthpiece because I'm a free agent, so to speak, as much as I wish that a lot of these companies and and people who are the fraud fighters at these companies could share them publicly. They just can't. So this is my way of trying to share that. Before getting too far into it, I'm going to say that I did give some thought to this. If If you did hear the last podcast episode, Matt Vegas said that one of the things he has learned most from having his own podcast is just how he needs to speak generally so that we're not giving away some of the secret sauce to the fraudsters. And so I just want to say that I will be holding back some information. So if you're like, hey, you didn't talk about this or that, probably a reason for it. I tried to be pretty thoughtful about what I am going to say and what I'm not going to say, where it's enough for you fraud fighters to really apply it to your world without giving too much of our secret secrets off the way to the bad guys, but also knowing that they know a lot. So it's a balance like most things, right? So the first thing I was going to share is looking at this from a different way. Account takeovers have been around for, they've been around in banking for over a decade. I think 
in e-commerce probably right around a decade or a little bit over maybe, but we were a few years after banking. And I think I've told the story before, but when I was at the trade association, I put together a panel by members of the Gamer Safety Alliance, which I had the privilege of helping to create as well as facilitate with some of the largest online gaming companies in the world, online as well as mobile gaming in the world. And on this panel were four very large gaming companies, and they were talking about account takeover because this was something that was new to them. The session room was completely full. It was standing room only. There were over 200 people in the room. But it wasn't because account takeover was popular. It was because a few of these companies hadn't ever spoken at a conference before. And a lot of people wanted to hear what they had to say. So this was back in 2013, I believe. And over the next several years, I watched account takeovers really start impacting all business models. Any online company that has accounts where a consumer has to log in with their username and password or their email and password are susceptible to account takeover. Even if it's a free account and you wouldn't necessarily know or understand why they do it. For instance, there was one fairly small merchant that I was speaking with a few weeks ago who identified account takeover for the first time on their site and they couldn't figure out why, but it turned out that all the fraudsters were doing were just updating the card on file. And they realized that the merchant was running a $0 authorization whenever a new card was put on file. And they were finding out if that card was good or bad so that they could then go on and make a higher dollar purchase. Account takeovers are happening for all kinds of reasons, and they're happening to merchants of all sizes. Any company that has these logins is susceptible. And I would say for consumers, I know a lot of you that listen are educated consumers and know this, but I just cannot talk about account takeovers without saying that one of the biggest problems is that consumers are using the same or a similar password for multiple accounts. I've been guilty of that in the past. I know how challenging it is to remember all the passwords. This is why a password manager is just so critically important because once they have one password to one account, it's fairly simple, especially with a pretty simple bot script to just see, oh, I wonder if they have the same username and password on this account and that account and that account over there and just wreak some havoc on consumers. And there is definitely a conversation to be had around merchants putting some of the responsibility on their consumers. There have been a few test cases where there have been merchants who have forced password resets and even gone so far to have some logic in there where the consumer can't use the same password for the last six or seven times. And they've seen a lot of consumers, a significant number just update their password six or seven times until it no longer has to be repeated and then just putting in the original password again. There's a definite need for consumer education as well as some guardrails to be put in place. And I think that it would be a great marketing idea for several merchants to get together or have some kind of a campaign for password security. That maybe that's just me off in the land. That's where marketing dollars would be spent. But I have seen some companies do that, especially companies that have good relationships and dialogues with their consumers through blogs or through social media. And it's actually worked really well. I also know that there are some efforts to eradicate passwords online. I think that is a real valiant effort and I am intrigued to see the technology behind it. But for now, we're stuck with them. So 
that was an unintended tangent, but that is part of Carice having conversations with herself or really with you. But I just like to cover my bases. Sometimes I picture like what the emails or LinkedIn messages are going to say after I say something. And so I try to address it right away. All right. So let's talk about method and intent. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. So intent is what is the intent of the fraudster? What are they trying to get? What are they trying to achieve by committing account takeover on your site or with your consumers? I've just created some buckets. I know that it really varies on vertical. Obviously, online gaming companies are going to have different business models than social media. And it's not always payment related. In fact, a lot of security teams or cybersecurity teams are also looking at account takeovers as well from a cybersecurity standpoint. So there are a lot of intentions within account takeover, but primarily around payment fraud or abuse. Some of the intentions are to drain the account of stored value. This is something that I will be talking about at the loyalty security conference. One of the many things, but this is something I'm really concerned about is some of the advice that I gave and other people gave a lot of the merchants in the travel industry, as well as in event ticketing and tourism was issue stored credits so that you don't have to lose the revenue that came in so you can keep the lights on, so to speak. That means that there are a lot of consumers out there with accounts of high value of hundreds of dollars in travel vouchers or event ticketing or sports events or whatever that is, right? So fraudsters are going to know that. They do know that. And they are going to count on customers and consumers using the same password for multiple accounts. They're going to count on it being fairly easy to commit account takeover via various methods. So this is also true for loyalty accounts like miles and points. It's also big for gift cards and online gift cards, mobile wallets, anything that has stored value that can be sold on a second market or reused in some way that has some kind of value or transfer of value, as Alexander Hall says, I really like that term, that is going to be really desired and will be a pretty common intent for account takeovers. It is currently, but I just am anticipating it being so much more once travel and event ticketing and sporting events and all of that pick back up. And there's more of a demand for those credits or gift cards in the second market in the marketplaces, the resale marketplaces. So that's definitely an intention of account takeover. Also, another intent is to use the card on file. And this is actually something that was really what was discussed the most, the type of ATO that was discussed the most on my retailer conversation last week. And several very large brands are starting to see fraudsters realizing that they don't have to buy cards. They can just log into accounts and especially utilizing methods like credential stuffing or brute force. They're able to log into these accounts and reuse the credit card. Now, when you're one of the methods or tools in the fraud fighter toolbox is to require the CVV for any new login on that. But then the question always comes, well, how much friction is that on the good guy versus the bad guy? But those are just some of the things to think about of why they would take over an account. It's to use that card on file. They don't need to go steal a card if they have access to an account. 
Additionally, using the legacy of an account, that's similar to using the card on file, but sometimes fraudster uses the legacy of the account and updates a whole new card. And a lot of times they'll do that when your fraud system values older accounts that have placed good purchases, either within your organization or within the consortium and the network that uses the same system as your company. And that really is around knowing that if a fraudster was to create a new account, they know that would be scored higher. A lot of this use case applies to legacy fraud fighting tools that are primarily rules-based systems because more than likely a lot of them will score an account that is new as riskier than an existing account that has made several purchases in the past. So bad guys know this and they're taking advantage of that. That one is less common than it used to be, but it's still there. Additionally, it can be to verify information or access the account of a VIP. I saw this happen on social media more than once of either state actors or other organizations or even just fans. I don't know if you guys remember years ago when the iCloud was in the news for a few celebrities being hacked in quotation marks. I hate that term for account takeover, but that is the layman's term, so to speak. And where their pictures and photos and their private information was accessed on the iCloud. That would be a perfect example of verifying information or accessing the account of a VIP. That could also happen on social media to send out a tweet on the celebrity's behalf or like last year with the whole Bitcoin debacle. I think it was the Bitcoin debacle when Bill Gates and all these other people had their accounts taken over and it was a coordinated post. I can't remember the specifics. I'm sure you're yelling it through your headphones right now. But that would be another example of that. Again, like if a company is social media, it's going to have different reasons and intent for account takeover than a retailer, than a gaming company, than a dating company, just all different kinds. But those are the core intentions or really what's driving them, what their goal is of the account takeover. And that is important in preventing it. Additionally important is the method being used. Is it credential stuffing? Is it brute force? Is it through phishing? Is it via malware? Just to go through those. So credential stuffing is reusing the passwords that have been exposed elsewhere. So there have been various breaches over the last decade where uh, usernames and passwords were exposed. And a lot of people And even just the way the media covered those was, oh, it's not card numbers, so it's fine. Actually, card numbers can be canceled very quickly. But most consumers, I think, I can't even remember the number. I want to say it's like 80% of consumers use a password on one or more than one account at a time. I think it's probably much higher than that. So what's happened is there's this whole lucrative business on the dark web where they are compiling lists and lists. And sometimes they just make them completely free and open source, which happened fairly recently with millions and millions of account credentials. And so some of these people are very patient. Others have bot scripts that they just run through to see which accounts they can access. And sometimes they're holding them on to themselves and they're the ones you know, actually monetizing those. Other times they are reselling the credentials to these accounts to specific websites or retailers in bulk for another party to monetize. The criminal economy and underground is 
fascinating, but I feel like I need a whiteboard to better explain it. But credential stuffing is common. And I would say that a lot of the technology to prevent or identify account takeover is around credential stuffing, or it's around different devices logging into the account or different IP addresses logging into the account than the original user. There's a lot more to it than that, but that is as much as I'm going to say about that technology, but they're you know really looking to identify credential stuffing as well as brute force attacks. So that's really just trying popular passwords via bots just over and over again. There are all those lists put out by various security companies of the most popular passwords being used. One, two, three, four, five, six, for example, or password one, two, three. Those can be put into scripts by bots for pennies, if even percentages of pennies, per attempt bad guy. And they just go through and again, create lists of which ones work. And then oftentimes we'll resell those in batches for someone else or another group to monetize. The other two ways are a little bit more sophisticated, but they're becoming more popular. Actually, I don't know if phishing is necessarily sophisticated and it has been popular for a long time, but it's continuing to be popular. Several years ago, it used to be really common. And I'm going to say this brand because I think there were lots and lots of headlines about it. I'm not breaking any news that PayPal was really a victim of this for a long time. I know I got a lot of them and I'm sure you did too, where you'd get emails from PayPal in quotation marks saying your account has been compromised. We need you to log in and reset your password. Actually, when you click in the email, you actually go to a different page that has nothing to do with PayPal and you enter in your username and password. And now the bad guys have it. And then, of course, a lot of times they'll also say, I wonder if that's attached to their eBay account or their Amazon account or if they have the same password to their banking or whatever it is. But that's how they'd obtain that. And those campaigns are still popular. They're really cheap for fraudsters to issue just tons and tons of emails. So even if they have a small percentage of a hit rate, that's pretty significant for them as far as information back. They're still changing up their game, but it's happening on behalf of e-commerce retailers now. So especially the biggest ones, because they assume that most people have accounts at those retailers, but they're happening all over the place. So that's another one. Another example of account takeover. Also, it's email inbox compromise. So this is a little bit harder to explain without a whiteboard or pictures. (laughs) And I believe Ellie Dominance spoke a little bit about it on episode 13 of the podcast. He's from Q6 Cyber, and this is who I've learned this from. I've been really lucky to learn a lot about criminal tactics and methodologies from working with Q6. And one of them is they're compromising email inboxes and then actually just watching them at scale. So they're just pulling all the information of all the retailers that a specific inbox is getting emails from for sometimes months. And then they will often sell the credentials to the inbox. Other times they're doing all kinds of things with it. So that's why it's really hard to generalize. But this is just like the most basic example. And once they have the user's inbox, which is fairly easy to get, unfortunately, especially because of reusing of passwords, et cetera, but also they can do a lost password and have a one-time password sent to SIM swapping. Like it's just, I could really go down a rabbit hole, but I'm really trying hard not to. So they're getting access to the inbox. And then of course they can now go into all kinds of retailers and maybe say that they lost the password and then get it sent into the inbox. And a lot of times they're either writing scripts for any email confirmation from a merchant or a bank or financial institution that they're hitting on behalf of the compromised inbox to go directly to junk 
Or sometimes they're just sending thousands and thousands of emails at the same time and just spamming the heck out of that inbox so that if my inbox was suddenly got a flood of thousands of emails and they were all junk, I wouldn't know to go sift through that and find a order confirmation email from a company. And I've seen a lot of those inboxes for sale. And a lot of times it'll say this inbox has accounts with XYZ retailers and listing them all. And the more they have, the more value it is. So that is definitely something to watch. And it's terrifying because honestly, a lot of Fraud prevention infrastructure has been built around something you have and something something you have is your inbox or your cell phone or when something was your password. Once the fraudsters have access to something that you have, either your inbox or they have been able to contact your cell phone provider to do a temporary SIM swap, then they have it. You're not the only one that has it. So those are just some of it. And then additionally, this is something that Ellie talked about a lot. And I actually want him to come back pretty soon because there's even more developments on it. But this is via malware. So I think I discounted how just how impactful malware can be to fraud, because I think I used to always think it was in the cybersecurity bucket. But there's been several malware families coming up over the last few years. And For the longest time, they were really targeting financial institutions and banks for money. But now that a lot of banks have various security in place, including most of them are working with Q6 Cyber to get this information in real time, they're now these criminal organizations that they're running these malware are now targeting them towards e-commerce retailers and a lot of other e-commerce companies. And basically... When a device is infected with malware, depending on the family, the malware family, every time a consumer is logging into any account online, the entire session details are being sent to the host. So that includes everything about the device. That includes a lot of the metadata that is used to determine account takeover is being transferred to the malware host. And often these are now sold in batches and given to fraudsters to then monetize this. And this allows them to then use an emulator. The most common one is Lincoln Sphere, or the most most common bad one like that really looks pretty legitimate is Lincoln Sphere. And that's spelled L-I-N-K-E-N and then S-P-H-E-R-E. And I really want Ellie to do a demo of this for, I don't know, I think I might be hosting some kind of a webinar or something. I really need to talk to him about this. But This is something I've wanted him to do for a while to my network. And I think it would be extremely beneficial to see just how easy it is to plug all the information that comes in from that malware into one of these emulators. And it essentially emulates or duplicates the good consumer's login with that specific retailer so that when the fraudster is logging in, it looks like the exact same person is logging in, even with the metadata and all the technology that has been put in place over the last several years to detect account takeover. I've talked to some very large companies that have huge budgets for detecting account takeover who are really struggling in detecting these. Some of them just are completely missing them. And it's especially around financial institutions or challenger banks where the stakes are really high. So this is scary. And even though it's currently impacting a lot of the more digital delivery goods or financial institutions or fintech, it is fairly quickly starting to impact retailers as well. And I know of at least one retailer that asked their fraud technology company if 
it would ever be possible for a fraudster to duplicate the device and login information from the good guy because they knew something looked like fraud, but they were like things that we always rely on for determining if it was account takeover or not aren't there. And they asked their fraud provider and their fraud provider said, absolutely not. That's not capable. I'm just here to tell you that it is. The capability is here because there are so many different methods and intent, kind of the way my brain works, so to speak, when a merchant is asking me about account takeover is I ask a few specific questions, right? What does it look like on your end? What are they trying to achieve? Are they doing this or that and this and that? And then I get to the point where depending on the method and intent, there are various different tools in the toolbox, so to speak, that can work. Obviously, device identification and fingerprinting has been great technology, and it still very much is. It still can really detect a vast majority of account takeovers. However, depending on your company, depending on how sophisticated the fraudsters are that are attacking you, it may not be working as much anymore. If they're attacking you via malware and emulators, if they are attacking you via the inbox when they have control of that, and it's going to look very similar as when the typical user logs in. And they'll be able to pass a lot of the one-time password and multi-factor authentication challenges that you might put in place. Between those, then there's also other things that can be put in place, obviously, are extra security when anything changes in the account. So for instance, if the intention is the use of the card on file, a lot of merchants have built in logic that says if the card on file is being used and the shipping address is changed or the phone numbers changed or the email address changed, something like that changes, then we'll have extra security. Maybe we'll have them re-enter the entire 16 digits of their credit card or re-enter the CVV, the last three digits on the back of the card or the first four on Amex or the last four digits on the front of the card on Amex and those types of things. But then there's a challenge of, are we preventing our good customers, et cetera? Those are just some of the things that you can do though, as far as looking at that and saying, okay, how can we put these things in place? But unfortunately for these retailers that we're talking the other day, now the fraudsters have realized that this is the case, which is why I'm feel like I can share this on a public forum because they've obviously figured this out at multiple retailers recently, fairly recently, that when they change anything, these extra challenges come up. So now they're simply shipping to the same address as the cardholder. They are using the same email address and then potentially sending hundreds of emails at the exact same time that they know that the confirmation email will be sent to the cardholder or they've hijacked the email inbox. That one can be challenging to tell uh, unless you're working with a company like Q6 that can provide that information as to which email inboxes are being sold. But that is much more an intelligence feature than any predictive analysis and risk scoring that can happen. What's happening is they're shipping it to the cardholder after the goods and services are outside of the merchant control and they are in the shipping process. Then the fraudsters are contacting the shipping partners. And even when merchants have agreements in place that no one can reroute packages, this is still occurring, especially now just because the customer service at the shipping partners is overwhelmed. A lot of them are presumably new because of all the new volume in the last year. And those policies aren't being enforced. And that is also something that's being discussed on these calls is to maybe we can combine 
the power of these merchants and be able to lobby or advocate to these shipping partners. But the other thing they're doing is sending it to an access point. There is one shipping partner that has a partnership with a very large drugstore in the U.S. And this has become a very easy way for fraudsters to reroute the package and just say, oh, you know what, I'm going to be really out running errands or I don't want packages left at my door because I have porch pirates or whatever. So can you ship it to the nearest pharmacy that you work with here? And I'll just pick it up. And a lot of times they'll send mules or other people to pick it up because they may be in a similar geolocation as the card holder or the account holder. And then they're often not asked for ID. And when they are asked for ID, it's not enforced. It's really hard to know who to place the blame on because the person at the front desk or the cashier at the drugstore has not been trained on knowing how to talk with these fraudsters or these mules, and they don't want to have a confrontation. These are just a few of the things happening, but I think one of the biggest points I wanted to make is that not all technology is going to solve all account takeovers. I think this is something that's being misrepresented within the market. And I think it's really important for, you know, merchants to understand what type of account takeover they're having. What are the methods? What does it look like? And then what are the tools that can be used to identify and stop it? And additionally, what happens when you plug that hole? What's the next step that they go through for account takeover? And vendors, I'm talking to you too. I think it's really important that you guys understand these nuances too. Because there's a lot of frustration within merchants that there's overpromising and underdelivering happening a lot. And I know a lot of that has to do with competition and VC, but a lot of it also has to do with just not really understanding the problems and just taking some buzzwords and some talking points and making assumptions that all account takeovers are created equal, that all fraud is created equal. And that's just not the case. And various methods and various intentions or goals of account takeovers, and this goes for all types of fraud, they have different solutions and there are different ways to solve it. Sometimes it's within a company for the, with their processes and their policies, or maybe there's something small they can change in the checkout. Other times they do need to rely on your technology. But I can guarantee you that it's the same kind of advice that's given to entrepreneurs. They say like niches get riches, I think is the way they say it. And broad is broke. I don't know. It's some catchy thing that clearly I don't always follow because I love all the things. But in this case, I would just say that I would encourage solution providers to really understand what types of account takeovers your solution solves. And then really being clear about that and asking enough questions of your prospects to understand what type of account takeovers they have and if your solution is going to solve that, if it's going to help for that. Because when it doesn't, that merchant is unhappy, especially if they've implemented your product by then and signed a five-year contract or a three-year or whatever it is. And they're going to tell everyone that your product doesn't work for account takeovers. They're not going to say the product doesn't work for account takeovers coming in from malware, but it will work for credential stuffing. No, they're just going to say they say that they stop account takeovers and they don't. It really is a difference between going for the long term or the short term. But I can tell you, I have seen the impact that your reputations have on your business. And I'm trying to help you here. And merchants will really respect you. I know several companies who have said, wow, 
I was talking to such and such vendor and they actually said that their solution wouldn't work for our problems. And then they go tell their merchants that and they're like, these guys will tell the truth to you. You can trust them. Go talk to them. That's what you want. And so this is something that honestly, I've had so many merchants recently ask me for a revamp of the merchants are from Mars, vendors are from Venus podcast episode I did for the previous podcast I was on, the online broadcast. And it's something that I want to do really thoughtfully. So I just haven't done lately. But this is just a small piece of that, that especially because of the pandemic, all providers and vendors have really had to, I don't want to say get aggressive, but some of you guys have really gotten aggressive on outreach to merchants and they're just overwhelmed. And they really will notice when you treat them differently. They do notice that. I am very lucky to work with a very small number of vendors in a long-term way. And I'm really proud of when I hear merchants say, wow, they're really different. They left me alone or they really gave me great advice or they didn't pressure me. So those are things that are really noticed, especially in this industry where we pay attention to details very closely because details matter a lot in e-commerce fraud prevention. And we can't help but have that go into other areas of our lives. But I would just really say merchants, if you're shopping for a solution for account takeover, Take a little time to understand your issues and really what the goals are of your fraudsters and your business model so that you can articulate that to, you know, your potential solution providers that you're talking to, potential partners, or even your current partners about maybe adding product, et cetera. And then on the flip side, solution providers, I just really hope that you understand that it's no longer a case of an account takeover is an account takeover. They're very different and there's a spectrum. And your solution might be really good. It might be the best for one specific method of account takeover, but not at all help for another. And I think it's really important that you understand that too. That is the majority of what I wanted to say today. Hopefully this has made sense and help you see things from a different perspective as far as diagnosing the problem, which will lead to the solutions. And that's really what I think is the most important in this space is really understanding the problem so that we can have the right solution and not just the right solution for today, but the right solution for the next several months and years. With that, I am going to wrap up this episode, but we'll come back next week with another great interview. And I look forward to speaking with you then. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.